0: This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: members of a Christian church is not what once they were. It is fashionable to be religious now. Persecution is over. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history
3: in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is preached by Charles Spurgeon. It was preached on November 11th, 1856 in London. Before we jump into uh, Spurgeon's life, we do want to point everyone over to the Revive Devos feed, which is a new show that we are making here at Revive Thoughts. Revive Devos takes the devotionals of
1: these great men in the past and records one for you every day so that you may listen to a short two to three minute clip. And there's these great men uh, that we've chosen for you, one for each day of the week. You're going to have D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, Jonathan Edwards, Richard Baxter, St. Augustine, Andrew Murray and Martin Luther, two to three minutes every morning. You get an opportunity to wake up, to hear from them, and hopefully it'll help you focus on God.
3: Yeah, and we have a new host for that show that we're excited to bring in. Nathaniel Owen is the narrator for that show. We hope you make it a part of your morning routine. You can search for Revive Devos in your podcast app of choice. Now, let's continue on with Spurgeon. Joel, it was
1: interesting doing the research for this episode because I realized that the verse that Spurgeon really centers on here, Habakkuk 3.2, is actually one he's done multiple sermons about. So when I wanted to go do more research on this, I kept running into these other sermons. It's not super important, but it it definitely seemed like this idea of revival and asking God to refresh his people is something that really stuck out to Charles Spurgeon. It's something that he came back to a lot. Now, we've done two other sermons by Charles Spurgeon before, and he's a familiar name to our listeners. He's a familiar name to most of us. They call him the Prince of Preachers. And you can check out those episodes in our catalog. The first one... uh, uh, a call to the depressed we interview the head of the spurgeon center who, and we talk about charles spurgeon's wrestling with depression i think it's a really yeah. important episode to listen to if you a haven't listened to it yet and also we did another episode on charles spurgeon before where we where you and i actually asked the idea was he you know the great as great a preacher as they say and we kind of run through the stats and i noticed that because
3: even though we've done two episodes we've actually never really done a rundown on his actual life like who he was Yeah, they've all been kind of focused on moments in his life, which I kind of like it when we do that. I kind of like just kind of exploring... A specific aspect of someone's life. We're kind of going to be doing a little bit more of that here today, focusing yeah. on a specific event in his life. But as a quick recap, Spurgeon, he was born in England in 1834. His father and grandfather were both already ministers, and he said that his earliest memories was looking at the books Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, you'd think that a child being raised in a household full of ministers would be destined to follow Jesus from the get-go, but that was not. The case. It really wasn't until he was about 15 years old and he set out one morning to go to a church service and he got caught in this terrible snowstorm. And this snowstorm is what we're going to kind of focus on here today. Yeah, I wanted to
1: focus on the snowstorm because it's actually really cool in my mind how it happened. And maybe you already have heard this story. I've, I, you know, as I was reading and doing research, a lot of people, yeah, it's the old snowstorm story. But Spurgeon is heading to church to hear his father preach, but a big snowstorm just blows in. Um, it, it, it's He can't see where he's going. He's cold, he's shivering, he's probably soaking wet. I grew up in Florida. This wasn't really a problem I had, and I remember the first couple times I got caught out in the snow, I couldn't understand why everyone didn't move to Florida. It's just absolutely awful. It's, it's so bad that Spurgeon realizes he's not going to make it to church. And so he actually just sees kind of a building up ahead. He sees it's a church, he says, I'm gonna go for it and see if there." he opens the door, it's unlocked, and there's some people inside, and, and it's a little Methodist chapel. Now, if you're me, I, honestly, I've seen snowstorms nice on the road, and I haven't wanted to go to church at all, right? Like sometimes it's just too much, and, and for so many, this would have been this huge inconvenience that kept them from going, and who knows how many people didn't go To church that day and didn't hear uh, the gospel, weren't able to. But even though that what would have looked like a bad day to everyone else, God was using it to save something, save someone very important in that moment. And as I said, some people wouldn't have been able to make it to church. Actually, the minister of that Methodist Chapel couldn't make it to church that day. He he could not make it to the chapel through the snowstorm. So the people in there that he was with were kind of wondering what to do. Uh, Spurgeon said he was the only young man in the church. So it was probably, you know, a bunch of old people and just him and he's a stranger just kind of walked in to get out of the cold. I imagine this was an uncomfortable moment for him. I imagine he's feeling awkward and kind of wishing the snow would let up so he could just leave. He sees this old man go up to the pulpit he he wasn't uh, a learned man. He wasn't an educated guy. This guy wasn't holding a big theological th- theological degree up there. As Spurgeon calls him in his you know memoirs and stuff, he calls him a shoemaker. This was just a simple guy who loved God, realized someone needed to get up and preach, and he decided he was going to be that guy.
3: That's right. And this guy didn't wake up ready to preach that day. He had no idea that, about the snowstorm. But he gets up there and he preaches the truth of the gospel from Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And this old man does probably like the least friendly thing that you could do to a new visitor at church. I don't know if you've ever been sitting in church and listening to the pastor speaking and have a moment of terrifying thought that like the pastor is going to like call you out individually and like... Point to you and speak to you and, and, and like preach directly to you by name. That's essentially what this pastor does. He he looks at Spurgeon and he points at him and he says, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live.
1: As Spurgeon said in that moment when that guy was talking directly to him, he just, he felt and saw the way to salvation and to the Lord. I don't know if it's because he grew up in the church and he just had never really been challenged Maybe because he was away from family ties and relationships, had these expectations on him, and so he could just kind of think about the question, or just this old man's faith got to him. Whatever it was, at 15, the Lord grabbed a hold of Spurgeon's heart. It's really important to note, too, I think it's an important part of Charles Spurgeon's life, is he really didn't go to school. And I, in the earlier episode, we point out he didn't go to Bible college, he didn't get a seminary degree, but he didn't actually even, wouldn't have even gone to what would have been high school back in his days. You know, so many of the guys in Revived Thoughts are these theological prodigies, and they're just, they're unstoppable. That's not really Spurgeon's story. He, he took a little bit of Greek on the side, he went to a little bit of school, but he didn't really go... Uh, any further than an average student would, or, and especially in that time period. And yet, he'll end up with this massive 12,000 book collection and tons of his own personal writings and annotations that are still being studied and published today. And again, you can just see how God took somebody from where they were and made them something different.
3: Yeah, Spurgeon almost immediately started preaching. And by 17, he was already at a church, and he had outlines for his sermons that he'd preached, but he wouldn't look at them. They said that he looked young and yet spoke with such maturity. Within a year and a half, there was a church in London, a congregation of 232 people that asked him to come there. This church loved hearing him speak and they wanted him to stick around for about six months. Nobody knew at the time that Spurgeon would end up spending the rest of his life uh, leading that church and that congregation there. So much so that they had to build a bigger building as the church expanded and it became what Troy and I kind of think about as the first real yeah. like mega church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They designed it to seat at least 5000 people, but even that wasn't nearly enough. It, when he would preach on a Sunday morning, there would be huge gatherings outside of the building, trying to trying, trying to just hear a little bit of what Spurgeon was preaching that morning. And this is, by the time he was 27, He th- this was going on. It's hard to imagine. That would be a big deal
1: today with all sure. of our technology and all of our microphones. If somebody could build that church that quickly, that would be a big deal today. In their time period where well, that wasn't yet even a thing, I... It, it would
3: have been phenomenal. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't appear to be very prideful. Like, yeah. I know. I mean, that's something we see time and time again with, with a lot of speakers here in America. Some, yeah, a lot of them will kind of lose their way. The more money, the more fame that comes their way. If Spurgeon ever did wrestle with pride, it's certainly just not something that we really see in his life very evidently.
0: This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism.
1: We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis, but also I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the, in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God
0: says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.
1: He was not always beloved, though. Uh, the New York Times and the London Times used to publish his sermons, which I kind of thought that was funny to think about, that we had these newspapers that are both, you know, they're both still around today, but imagine back in the day they were preaching sermons and people were buying them. They wanted to read them. That's something so foreign to us now, the idea that you would pick up a newspaper and see a sermon by a famous preacher. But anyway, he was so widely read that a lot of people knew what he was preaching and they would attack him and they would write articles against him and they say, hey, you know, he spends too much time talking about grieving parents or harlots from the Bible or, other Old Testament subjects, they said that we're really not supposed to talk about, uh, and you maybe have to put yourself back in their shoes again. This is Victoria, Victorian England era. This was a time of high society. When, when asked about it, Spurgeon said, "You know, I am perhaps vulgar, but it's not intentional. Save that I must,
3: and I will make people listen. My firm conviction is that we have had enough polite preachers." Yeah, one of the stories I like about Spurgeon from this uh, from this time in his life comes from Queen Victoria. She liked Spurgeon a lot and was fascinated with him. And so she invited him to come to the palace and preach there. And there was a national day of prayer. She had a huge fast for the country. And Spurgeon, at 23 years old, comes out to preach. And a crowd of 23,000 shows up to hear him. 23,000 people, no microphones, no jumbotron for you to see, no transcripts for the crowd to read. It was 23,000 people standing in silence trying to hear a man who knows how far away Preaching the word of God. Where do you, where do you put all the horses? Where do the a, carriages go? Like, how do you park that many people with horses back in those days? That's a that good question. That is a good question. History deep dive episode. We need to figure <laughs> out where did people put horses during these big gatherings. There's got to be, there's just, you know, like how we have parking garages now. They must yeah. have had parking stables. A reporter for a newspaper there, uh, he was blown away by the crowd. And he goes up to this child who was sitting in the back. And, uh, I mean, Spurgeon is a small speck way out on the horizon preaching. And this reporter asks this this child, can you even hear what, what he's saying from this far away? And this kid supposedly looks up at him and smiles and says, of course, as if he was sitting next to me and whispering into my ear. And it brings up an interesting point that Troy and I kind of talk about sometime. Like, is, is the Holy Spirit like a part? You know, before megaphones, before microphones and and amps existed, like, was that something that the Holy Spirit helped people project their voice and communicate with more people or not? I don't know. It's just something fun to kind of think about. It's just a question.
1: But Spurgeon did believe in using your voice and mastering it. We will probably wrap it up around here. I, I, we could keep going and, and we will in a future episode. Uh, but Spurgeon recommended that everyone who wanted to be a preacher and, and, and any students he had at a school or anywhere he was, he would tell them to practice speaking, practice making speeches, practice throwing your voice, using your voice, and just get used to the power of your vocal cords. And it really made a lot of sense to me too. Musicians have to practice their gifts to the Lord. They have to practice singing. I think a lot of us today could actually really benefit from using and viewing our voices as something that can be practiced to make it sound more appealing Uh, he described it really interestingly too he said a lot of people think that louder is better but spurgeon said that a bell can be heard further than a drum and that it is not a thumping on a piano people want to hear but a gentle playing of a beautiful musical instrument that the sweeter and better you can sound the more you can reach the hearts of your listeners Anyway, we only actually made it to about his 20s or so in Spurgeon's life in this uh, little short clip here, but I'm sure we'll, we will come back around to him and finish him up. There's a there's really an unending treasure trove in this guy's life, and it's, it's always really fun to hear the different stories of people interacting with him.
3: Yeah, this guy really completely changed the church. The way he spoke and the way he preached brought so many people to Christ that were not believers before. In this sermon that we're about to listen to, he talks about what the church is lacking. Spurgeon is actually preaching the sermon at George Whitefield's old church, who we have a sermon on uh, as well. You should check that out. But he's preaching to the congregation. He's challenging the congregation. He actually says during the sermon, where is the next Whitefield? Who could do what Whitefield does? And the irony of it is that, I mean, Spurgeon ended up being that person. Spurgeon was that next Whitefield. And even more, we really see God use Spurgeon in in such incredible ways. His challenge was to call the church to raise up and be a more devoted people, and I hope this message will do the same today.
2: All true religion is the work of God. If he should select out of his works the thing he treasures most, he would select true religion. He regards the work of grace as being even more glorious than the works of nature. And he is especially careful that it will always be known so that if anyone dare deny it, they will do so in the teeth of repeated testimonies to the contrary. God indeed is the author of salvation in the world and in the hearts of men and that religion is the effect of grace and it is the work of God. I believe the eternal might sooner forgive the sin of ascribing the creation of the heavens and the earth to an idol than that of ascribing the works of grace to the efforts of the flesh or to anything else but God. It is a sin of the greatest magnitude to suppose that there is something else in the heart which can be acceptable to God, save that which God himself has first created there. When I deny God's work in creating the Son, I deny one truth. But when I deny that he works grace in the heart, I deny a hundred truths in one. For in the denial of that one great truth, that God is the author of good in the souls of men, I have denied all the doctrines which make up the great articles of faith and to run in the very teeth of the whole testimony of sacred scripture. I trust, beloved, that many of us have been taught that if there is anything in our souls which can carry us to heaven, it is God's work, and that if there is anything that is good and excellent found in his church, it is entirely God's work from first to last. We firmly believe that it is God who quickens the soul which was dead, positively dead in trespasses and sins, that it is God who maintains the life of that soul and God who consummates and perfects that life in the home of the blessed. We ascribe nothing to man but all to God. We dare not for a moment think that the conversion of the soul is affected either by its own effort or by the efforts of others. We think that we are right in applying the text, the work of divine grace, both in the heart and in the church at large. And there is no subject better for our consideration than the text, O Lord, revive your work. First, beloved, trusting that the spirit of God will help me, I will endeavor to apply the text to our own souls personally, and then to the state of the church at large for there is a need that the Lord should revive his work in its midst. So first then, to our own souls personally. In this matter, we should begin at home. We too often flog the church when the whip should instead be laid on our own shoulders. We drag the church like a colossal culprit to the altar. We bind her and try to execute her at once. We look for faults in her where there is none and do our best to magnify her little errors, while we too often forget ourselves. Let us begin with ourselves, remembering that we are part of the church and that our own need of revival is in some measure the cause of that lack in the church at large. Now I directly charge the great majority of professing Christians, and I take the charge to myself as well, with a need of revival, of dutiful devotion in these days. I will lay the charge before you abruptly because I think I have abundant grounds to prove the charge. I believe that the mass of Christian men in this age need a revival, and my reasons are these. In the first place, Look at the conduct and conversation of too many who profess to be the children of God. It is never good for any man who occupies the sacred space of a pulpit to flatter his hearers, and I will not attempt to do so today. The evil lies with too many of you who unite yourselves with Christian churches and yet live lives protesting against your professions of faith. It has become very common nowadays to join a church. People go where they may find professing Christians who sit down at some Lord's table or another, but are there fewer cheats than there used to be? Are there less frauds committed? Do we find morality more abundant? Do we find vice entirely at an end? No, we do not. The age is as immoral as any that has preceded it there is still as much sin, although it is more cloaked and hidden. The outside of the tomb may be whiter, but within the bones are just as rotten as before. Society is not one whit improved. Those men who in our popular magazines give us a true picture of the state of London life are to be believed and credited, for they do not stretch the truth and they have no motive for doing so. And the picture which they give of the morality of this great city is certainly appalling. It is criminal, full of sin. And I will say this, that if all the professions in London were true professions of faith, it would not be nearly such a wicked place as it is. It couldn't remain as bad as it is. My brethren, it is well known that it is not in these days a sufficient guarantee, even of a man's honesty, that he is a member of a church. It is a hard thing for Christian ministers to say, but we must say it, and if friends don't say it, enemies will. And better that the truth should be spoken in our midst, that men may see that we are ashamed of it, that they should hear us impudently deny what we must confess to be true. Oh, sirs, the lives of too many of members of the Christian churches give us grave cause to suspect there is none of the life of godliness in them at all. All that reaching after money, all that covetousness, all that following of the crafts and devices of a wicked world, all that clutching here and clutching there, that grinding of the faces of the poor, that stamping down of the workmen and such like things. God in heaven knows that what I say is true, and too many here know it themselves. If they are Christians, at least they want revival. If there is a life in them, it is but a spark that is covered up with heaps of ashes. It needs to be fanned and it needs to be stirred also, that some of the ashes may be removed and the spark may have a place to live. The church as a whole needs revival in the heart of its members. The members of a Christian churches are not what once they were. It is fashionable to be religious now. Persecution is over. And oh, I almost said, the gates of the church were taken away with it. The church has, with few exceptions, no gates now. People come in and go out of it just as they would march through St. Paul's Cathedral and make it a place of tourism instead of regarding it as a select and sacred spot to be apportioned to the holy of the Lord. If this isn't true, you know how to treat it. You need not confess to sin you have not committed. But if it is true, and true in your case, oh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Ask him to search and try you, that if you are not his child, you may be helped to renounce your earlier profession, lest it should be to you but the gaudy pageantry of death, a mere tinsel and a ticket in which to go to hell. If you are his, ask that he may give you more grace, that you may renounce these faults and follies and turn to him with your whole heart Again, where the conduct of professing Christians is consistent, let me ask the question, does not the conversation of many a professor lead us either to doubt the truthfulness of his piety or else to pray that his piety may be reviled? Have you noticed the conversation of too many who think themselves Christians? You might live with them from the 1st of January to the end of December, and you would never be tired of religion for what you would hear of it. They scarcely mention the name of Jesus Christ at all. On Sabbath afternoon, all the ministers are talked over. Faults are found with this one and that one, and all kinds of conversation take place, which they call religious, because it is concerning religious places. But do they ever talk of all he did and said, and suffered for us here below, the path he marked for us to tread, and what he's doing for us now. Do you often hear the salutation addressed to you by your brother, Christian? Friend, how does your soul prosper? When we step into each other's houses, do we begin to talk concerning the cause and truth of God? Do you think that God would now stoop from heaven to listen to the conversation of his church? As once he did when it was said, the Lord listened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. I solemnly declare as the result of thorough and I trust impartial observation that the conversation of Christians while it cannot be condemned on the score of morality, must, almost invariably, be condemned on the score of Christianity. We talk too little about our Lord and Master. That ugly word, sectarianism, has crept into our midst. And we must say nothing about Christ, because we are afraid of being called sectarians, sectarians. I am a sectarian and hope to be so until I die and to glory in it for I cannot see nowadays that a man can be a Christian thoroughly in earnest without winning for himself the title sectarian. Why we must not talk of this doctrine perhaps because such a one believes disbelieves it. We must not notice such and such a truth in scripture because such and such a friend doubts or denies it and so we drop all the great and grand topics which used to be the staple of godly talk and begin to speak of anything else because we feel that we can agree better on worldly things than we can on spiritual isn't it true and isn't it a sad sin with some of us that we have to pray to god O Lord, revive your work in my soul, that my conversation may be more Christ-like, seasoned with salt, and kept by the Holy Spirit. And yet, a third remark here. There are some whose conduct is all that we could wish, whose conversation is for the most part saturated with the gospel and savoury of truth, but even they will confess to a third charge, which I must now sorrowfully bring against them and against myself, namely, that there is too little real communion with Jesus Christ. If, thanks to divine grace, we are enabled to keep our conduct tolerably consistent and our lives unblemished, yet how much we too cry out against ourselves from a lack of that holy fellowship with Jesus which is the high mark of the true child of God. Brothers, let me ask you how long it has been since you have had a love visit from Jesus Christ. How long since you could say, my beloved is mine and I am his, he feeds me among the lilies. How long since he brought you into his banqueting house and his banner over you was love, Now, perhaps some of you will be able to say, it was but this morning that I saw him. I beheld his face with joy and was ravished with his countenance. But I fear the greatest part of you here today will have to say, ah, sir, for months I have been without the shinings of his countenance. What have you been doing? And what has been your way of life? Have you been groaning every day? Have you been weeping every minute? No? Then you should have been. I cannot understand how your piety can be of any brilliant order if you can live without the sunlight of Christ and yet be happy. Christians will sometimes lose the realization of Jesus. The connection between themselves and Christ will at times be severed as to their own conscious enjoyment of it. But they will always groan and cry when they lose their Jesus. What, is Christ your brother and does he live in your house and yet you have not spoken to him for a month? I fear there is little love between you and your brother, for you have had no conversation with him for so long. What? Is Christ the husband of his church? And has she had no fellowship with him for all this time? Brothers, let me not condemn you. Let me not even judge you, but let your conscience speak. Mine will, and so will yours. Have we not too often forgotten Christ? Have we not lived too much without him? Have we not been contented with the world, instead of desiring Christ? Have we been, all of us, like that little lamb that did drink out of the master's cup and feed from his table? Have we not rather been content to stray upon the mountains, feeding anywhere but at home? I fear many of the troubles of our heart spring from lack of communion with Jesus. Not many of us are the kind of men who, living with Jesus, his secrets must know. Oh no, we live too much without the light of his countenance and are too happy when he is gone from us. Let us, each of us, for I am sure we have each of us need in some measure, put up the prayer. O Lord, revive your work. Ah, I think I hear one professor saying, Sir, I need no revival in my heart. I am everything I wish to be. Down on your knees, my brother. Down on your knees for that one. He is the man that most needs to be prayed for. He says that he needs no revival in his soul, but he needs a revival of his humility to start if he supposes that he is all that he ought to be, and if he knows that he is all he wishes to be, well, he has very small notions of what a Christian is or of what a Christian should be. Those who are in the best condition, who, while they know they need reviving, yet feel their condition and groan under it and pray to the Lord to revive them. Now, I think I have in some degree proven my charge I fear with arguments too strong. And now let me notice that the text has something in it which I trust that each of us has. Here is not only an evil implied in these words, O Lord, revive your work, but there is an evil evidently felt. You see, Habakkuk knew how to groan about it. Oh, Lord, he said, revive your work. Ah, many of us want revival, but few of us feel that we want it. It is a blessed sign of life within when we know how to groan over our departures from the living God. It is easy to find by hundreds those that have departed but you must count those by ones and twos who know how to groan over their departure. The true believer, however, when he discovers that he needs revival, will not be happy. He will begin at once that incessant and continuous strain of cries and groans, which will at last prevail with God and bring the blessing of revival down he will, days and nights in succession, cry, O Lord, revive your work. Let me mention some groaning times which will always occur to the Christian who needs revival. I am sure he will always groan when he looks upon what the Lord did for him of old, when he recollects the misers and the hermans and those places where the Lord appeared of old to him, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I know he will never look back to them without tears. If he is what he should be as a Christian, or if he thinks he is not in the right condition, he will always weep when he remembers God's loving kindness of old. Oh, whenever the soul has lost fellowship with Jesus, It cannot bear to think of the chariots of Aminadab. It cannot endure to think of the banqueting house, for it has not been there so long. And when it does think of it, it says, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed, how sweet their memory still. But now I find an aching void the world can never fill. When one who is in this state hears a sermon which regards the glorious experience of the believer who is in a healthier state, he will put his hand upon his heart and say, Ah, such was my experience once but those happy days are gone my sun is set, those stars which once lit up my darkness are all quenched oh that I might again behold him oh that I might once more see his face oh for those sweet visits from on high oh for those grapes of Eskol once more and by the rivers of Babylon you will sit down and weep. You will weep when you remember your goings up to Zion, when the Lord was precious to you, when he laid bare his heart and was pleased to fill your heart with the fullness of his love. Such times will be groaning times when you remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Again, to a Christian who wants revival, ordinances will also be groaning times. He will go up to the house of God, but he will say of himself when he comes away, Ah, how different. When I once went with the multitude that kept holy day, every word was precious. When the song ascended, my soul had wings, and up it flew to its nest upon the stars. When the prayer was offered... I could devoutly say amen, but now the preacher preaches as he did before. My brethren are as profited as they were before, but the sermon is dry to me and dull. I find no fault with the preacher. I know the fault is in myself. The song is just the same and as sweet the melody, as pure harmony, but... uh, my heart is heavy, my harp strings are broken, and I cannot sing." And the Christian will return from these blessed means of grace, sighing and sobbing, because he knows he wants revival. And most especially at the Lord's Supper, he will think when he sits at the table, oh, what seasons I once had here, in breaking the bread and drinking the wine my master was present he will think to himself how his soul was even carried to the seventh heaven and the house was made the very house of God and the gate of heaven but now he says but it is bread dry bread to me it is wine tasteless wine with none of the sweetness of paradise in it I drink but all in vain, no thoughts of Christ. My heart will not rise. My soul cannot throw a thought halfway to him. And then the Christian will begin to groan again, O Lord, revive your work. But I will not detain you upon that subject. Those of you who know that you are in Christ, but feel that you are not in a desirable condition because you do not love him enough and have not faith in him which you desire to have, I would just ask you this. Do you groan over it? Can you groan now? When you feel your heart is empty, is it an aching void? When you feel that your garments are stained, can you wash those garments with tears? When you think your Lord is gone, Can you hang out the black flag of sorrow and cry, oh Jesus, my Jesus, where have you gone? If you can't, then I bid you to do it. Do it, do it. And may God be pleased to give you grace to continue to do it until a happier era will dawn in the reviving of your soul. My last thought upon this point uh, that the soul, when it is really brought to feel its own sad estate because of its departure from God, is never content without turning its groanings into prayer and without addressing the prayer to the right place. O Lord, revive your heart. Some of you perhaps will say, Sir, I feel my need of revival. And I intend to set to work this very afternoon, as soon as I will retire from this place, to revive my soul. Do not say it. And above all things, do not try to do it, for you will never do it. Make no resolutions as to what you will do. Your resolutions will as certainly be broken as they are made. And your broken resolutions will but increase the number of your sins. I warn you, instead of trying to revive yourself, to offer prayers. Don't say, I will revive myself, but cry, O Lord, revive your works. And let me solemnly tell you, you have not yet felt what it is to decline. You do not yet know how sad is your estate, otherwise you wouldn't talk of reviving yourself. If you did truly know your own position, you would as soon expect to see the wounded soldier on the battlefield heal himself without medicine or convey himself to the hospital when his limbs are shot away as you would expect to revive yourself without the help of God. I bid you not do anything, not seek to do anything, until first of all you have addressed Jehovah, himself, by mighty prayer, until you have cried out, O Lord, revive your work. Remember, he that first made you must keep you alive, and he that has kept you alive must restore more life to you. He that has preserved you from going down to the pit when your feet have been sliding, can alone set you again upon a rock and establish your goings. Begin by humbling yourself and giving up all hope of reviving yourself as a Christian, but beginning at once with firm prayer and earnest supplication to God. O Lord, what I cannot do, you must do. O Lord, revive your work. Christian brothers, I leave these matters with you. Give them the attention they deserve. If I have erred and judged you too harshly, God will forgive me, for I have meant it honestly. But if I have spoken truly, treasure it in your hearts. Weep, men apart and women apart, husbands apart and wives apart, weep. Weep, my brothers, it is a sad thing to depart from the living God. Weep, and may he bring you back to Zion, that you may one day return like Israel, not with weeping, but with songs of everlasting joy. And now I come to the second part of the subject, upon which I must be more brief. In the church itself, Taken as a body, this prayer ought to be one incessant and solemn litany. O Lord, revive your work. In the present era, there is a sad decline of the vitality of godliness. This age has become too much the age of shadow instead of the age of life. I date the hour of life from this day 100 years ago, when the first stone was laid of this building in which we now worship God. Then was the day of life divine and of power sent down from on high. God had clothed Whitfield with power. He was preaching with a majesty and a might of which one could scarcely think mortals could ever be capable. Not because he was anything in himself, but because his master girded him with might. After Whitfield, there were a succession of great and holy men, but now, sirs, we have fallen upon the dregs of time. Men are the rarest things in this world. We have not many left now. We have no men in the government hardly to conduct our politics, and scarcely any men in religion. We have things that perform their duties We have the good and perhaps the honest things, who in the regular routine go on like pack horses with their bells, but men who dare to be singular, because to be singular is generally to be right in a wicked world, and not very many in this age. Compared with the Puritanic times, even where are our divines? Could we marshal together our hows and our charnocks? Could we gather together such names as I could mention about it 50 at a time? I think not. Nor could we bring together such a galaxy of grace and talent as that which immediately followed Whitfield. Think of Rowland, Hill, Newton, Toplady, Doddridge, and numbers of others who time would fail me to mention. They are gone. They are gone. Their venerated dust sleeps in the earth and where are their successors ask where and the echo will reply where there are none successors of them where are they God has not yet raised them up or if he has you have not yet found out who they are there is much preaching and what is it O Lord, help your servant to preach and teach him by your spirit what to say. And then out comes the manuscript and they read it. A pure insult to Almighty God. We have preaching, but it is of this order. It is not preaching at all. It is speaking very beautifully and very finely, possibly even eloquently in some sense of the word. But where is the write-down preaching, such as Whitfield's? Have you ever read one of his sermons? You will not think him eloquent. You cannot think him so. His expressions were rough, frequently very coarse and unconnected. But where lay his eloquence? Not in the words you read, but in the tone in which he delivered them. And in the earnestness with which he felt them, and in the tears which ran down his cheeks, in the pouring out of his soul. The reason why he was eloquent was just what the word means. He was eloquent because he spoke right out from his heart, from the innermost depths of the man. You could see when he spoke that he meant what he said. He did not speak as a job or as a mere machine but he preached what he felt to be the truth when you heard him preach you could not help feeling that he was a man who would die if he could not preach and with all his might call to men and say come, come come to Jesus Christ and believe on him now that is just the lack of these times Where? Where is earnestness now? It's neither in the pulpit nor yet in the pew, as much as we need it. And it is a sad, sad age when earnestness is scoffed at, and when that very zeal, which ought to be the prominent characteristic of the pulpit, is regarded as enthusiasm and fanaticism. I ask God to make us all such fanatics, as most men laugh at to make us all just such enthusiasts as many despise we reckon it the greatest fanaticism in the world to go to hell the greatest enthusiasm upon earth to love sin better than righteousness and we think that those neither fanatics nor enthusiasts who seek to obey God rather than man and follow Christ in all his ways We repeat that one sad proof that the church wants revival is the absence of that death-like, solemn earnestness which was once seen in Christian pulpits. The absence of sound doctrine is another proof of our need for revival. Do you know who are called antinomians now? Who are called hypers who are laughed at, who are rejected as being unsound in the faith. Why, the men that once were the orthodox are now the heretics. We can turn back to the records of our Puritan fathers, to the articles of the Church of England, to the preaching of Whitfield, and we can say that preaching, it is the very thing we love. But because we choose to proclaim them, we are thought singular and strange. And the reason is because sound doctrine has, to a great degree, ceased. It began this way. First of all, all the truths were fully believed, but the little angles were taken off. The minister believed election, but he didn't use the word for fear it should in some degree disturb the peace of the deacon in the green pew in the corner. He believed that all men were depraved, but he didn't say it out loud because if he did, there was a lady who had subscribed to the chapel. She would not come again. So that while he did believe it, and did say it in some sense, he rounded it just a little. And afterward it came to this. Ministers said, well, we believe these doctrines, but we do not think them profitable to preach to the people. They're they're quite true, free grace, it's true. The great doctrines of grace that were once preached by Christ, by Paul, by Augustine, by Calvin, and down to this age by their successors, they're they're true, but they'd better be kept back. They must be very cautiously dealt with. They're very deep and dreadful doctrines, and they mustn't be preached. We believe them, but we dare not speak them out. And then after that, it came to something worse they said within themselves, well, if these doctrines will not do for us to preach, perhaps they're not true at all. And going one step further, they said, they dare not preach them. They did not actually say it, but they began just to hint that they weren't true. Then they went one step further, giving us something which they said was the truth. And then they would cast us out of the synagogue, as if they were the rightful owners of it, and we were the intruders so they have passed on from bad to worse. And if you read the standard divinity of this age and the standard divinity of Whitfield's day, you will find that the two cannot by any possibility stand together. We have got a new theology. New theology. Why, it is anything but a theology. It is an ology which has cast out God utterly and entirely and enthroned man as it is the doctrine of man and not the doctrine of the everlasting God. We want a revival of sound doctrine once more in the midst of the land. And the church at large needs a revival of downright earnestness in its members, You are not the men to fight the Lord's battles yet. You lack the earnestness, the zeal, which once the children of God had. Your forefathers were oaken men, you are willow men. Our people, what are many of them? Strong in doctrine when they are with strong doctrine men, but they waver when they get with others and they change as often as they change their company. They're sometimes one thing and sometimes another. They are not the men to go to the stake and die. They are not the men that know how to die daily and so are ready for death when it comes. Look at our prayer meetings. With here and there a bright exception. Go in there are six women scarcely ever enough members come to pray four times look at them prayer meetings they are called spare meetings they ought to be called for sparely enough they are attended and very few that are there go to our fellowship meetings or to any other meetings that we have to help one another in the fear of the Lord are they attended at all? I'd like to see a newspaper printed somewhere containing a list of all the people that went to those meetings during the week in any of our chapels. Ah, my friends, if they should comprise all the Christians in London, you might find that a chapel or two would hold them all. There are few enough that go. We don't have earnestness, and we don't have life as once we had. If we had we should be called worse names than we are. We should have viler names thrown at us. If we were more true to our master, we should not have all things quite so comfortable. If we served God better, we are getting the church to be an institution of our land, an honourable institution. Ah, some think it a grand thing when the church becomes an honourable institution. I think it shows the church has swerved when she begins to be very honourable in the eyes of the Lord. She must still be cast out. She must still be called evil and still be despised until that day will come when her Lord will honour her because she has honoured him. He will honour her even in this world in the day of his appearing. Beloved, do you not think it true the church wants reviving yes or no no you say not to the extent that you suppose we think the church is in good condition we are not among those who cry the former days were better than these perhaps you're not you may be far wiser than we are and therefore you are able to see those various signs of goodness which are to us so small that we are not able to discover them you may suppose that the church is in good condition. If so, of course, you cannot sympathize with me in preaching from such a text and urging you to such a prayer. But there are others of you who are frequently prone to cry, the church needs reviving. Let me bid you, instead of grumbling at your minister, instead of finding fault with all the different parts of the church, to cry. Oh, Lord, revive your work. Oh, says one, if we had another minister. Oh, if we had another kind of worship. Oh, if we had a different sort of preaching. Just as if that were all it is. It is. Oh, if the Lord would come into the hearts of the men you have got. Oh, if he would make the forms you do use full of power. You do not want fresh ways of fresh machinery. You need life in what you have. There is an engine on a railway. A train has to be moved. Bring another engine, says one, and another, and another. The engines are brought up, but the train doesn't move at all. Light the fire and get the steam up. That is what you lack. Not fresh engines. We do not want fresh ministers or fresh plans or fresh ways or fresh expressions, though many might be invented to make the church better. We only want life in what we have got. Given the very man who has emptied your chapel, given the self-same person that brought your prayer meeting low, God can make the chapel crowded to the doors yet and give thousands of souls to that very man. It is not a new man that is needed. It is the life of God in him. Do not be crying out for something new. It will no more succeed of itself than what you have. Cry, oh Lord, revive your work. I've noticed in different churches that the minister has thought first of this contrivance and then of that one. He's tried one plan and thought that would succeed. Then he tried another and that wasn't it. Keep to the old plan, but get life in it. We do not need anything new. The old is better. Let us keep to it. But we want life in the old. Oh, men cry. We have nothing but the shell. They are going to give us a new shell. No, sirs, we will keep the old one, the old thing. But we must or else we will throw the old away. Let's have life in the old. Oh, that God would give us life. The church wants fresh revivals, oh for the days of Camberslang again, when Whitfield preached with power, oh for the days when in this place hundreds were converted, sometimes under Whitfield's sermons. It's been known that 2,000 credible cases of conversion have happened under a single sermon Oh, for the age when eyes should be strained and ears should be ready to receive the word of God and when men should drink in the word of life, since it is the very water of life which God gives to dying souls. Oh, for the age of deep feeling, the age of deep, thoroughgoing earnestness. Let us ask God for it. Let us plead with him for it. Perhaps he has the man or the men somewhere who will shake the world yet. Perhaps even now he is about to pour forth a mighty influence upon men, which will make the churches as wonderful in this age as it ever was in any age that has passed. God grant it, for Christ's sake. Amen.
1: There's a part in the sermon where he goes, I know you're not all saved. Look at the crime stats of London. How can you all be believers if crime is so high? I read the newspapers. He doesn't say it in those exact words, but he pretty much says that to them. And it's such an amazing way to talk to your audience. Such a truthful and honest look at his people. He doesn't just assume they know God. He goes, look, I'm looking around me. I'm seeing the fruit and I see the crime stats. How can you be Christians? I We say this a thousand times on the show, but imagine a minister looking at his congregation and saying, Look, you criminals, you can't be Christians if you're going to be acting like this. I also think, though, that that is so there's truth there, and there's a way of just speaking the truth and being blunt and being honest and not telling them what they need, what they want to hear, but telling them what they need to hear. Because if you want them to grow up and to become Christians that are going to change the world and actually make a difference and be remembered. They need to be told the truth about themselves, which is, look, you are not producing fruit that looks like Christian-believing fruit. And I really love the way Charles Spurgeon does that. I love the way he just goes after them. And I really hope that 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 continued desire will be in the church today, that we have not grown soft on telling people the real truth of the gospel and who we really are, which is sinners.
3: Yeah, one of the reasons I love Revived Thoughts. I'm looking at all these different eras. One of the things I find interesting is that every pastor always thinks that their generation is one of the most sinful generations. You know, like even in today's society, it's not uncommon at all to hear a pastor say, "Look, look around us. Look, look how awful our society looks. How sinful it is." And I mean, realistically, we're fallen people. Every generation is as fallen as the previous generation. But I do think it's interesting that Spurgeon. There's a point in there where he talks about how it's fashionable to go to church. Like he's saying that everyone goes to church now. No one has taken this seriously. And what's more is that it's it's a front. It's a disguise. There's a, He's so good with his poetry. He says at one point that the outside of the tombs may have become wider, but within the bones are just as rotten as before, saying that the, these these people are going to church. They look like they're being spiritual, but inside their bones are just as rotten as the rest of society. And I mean, that's kind of in contrast to current society where, you know, more and more people are becoming unchurched. They're, they're outside of the church. Uh, and people look at that and say, what a sinful generation. But here Spurgeon's looking at people going to church and saying, what a sinful generation. It's just, it's just, it's fascinating to see people's view on humanity and how, you know, whatever era, whatever time we're in, we're a fallen people, we're a sinful people that need Jesus, we need salvation, and we need His grace. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Special thanks to Dave Wakefield for narrating today's episode. You can find the transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes at ReviveThoughts.com. We want to leave another reminder to check out Revive
1: Devos, another chance for you to hear truth from the past, listen to it in your ears. We we really pictured this and imagined this as just something you, you woke up in the morning, you downloaded, you listened to it while taking your morning cup of coffee or right before you read your Bible or afterwards. Just another reminder, another fresh outlook on God from someone from the past who can hopefully encourage you in your walk today. And we wanted it short and simple, something you could just enjoy as a little bite of something to get you going. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts.
0: This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.